Isaiah chapter 48, and we're looking at verses 9 to 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Well, good afternoon. Thanks for tuning in at home and, um, and for everyone who's here in the building with us. Thank you for being here as well. A couple of thank yous for this afternoon. One is to our musicians for just serving us week after week. Can we just thank them? Uh, and for leading us in that and in a difficult season, that's been a real, uh, a real thing of grace from God. And also thanks to the tech team for really for pivoting this morning. What, what can you do? What can you do when the internet goes down in Balmain? And so they've actually managed to scramble and pull things together so that you at home can continue to, um, to be served by the team here as well. And to kick off our series, which, as Jacob said, is nine weeks, looking at deep. And the reason we are doing this is because we want to be deep disciples. We want, we want to be people who have done our own thinking when it comes to your worldview. And if you are someone who follows Jesus, your faith. But even if you aren't someone who follows Jesus, if you're tuning in, you wouldn't describe yourself as particularly spiritual or religious. It matters that you would have a well-built worldview. It matters that you would know what you believe and why and you've asked hard questions and looked to answer them. But the other thing with this series is that our hope and prayer is that it won't just build deep, that it will build deeper disciples and not just smarter sinners. That you wouldn't walk away from this knowing a few bigger words or something like that, but that knowledge of God would result in real action because the warning in, in Scripture is clear. Paul says in Corinthians 13 that knowledge that doesn't result in love is not knowledge. But not only that, he also warns in Romans 12 that action without knowledge is not action that honors God. The two have to go together. You deepen in your knowledge of God, and that should lead to changed behaviors. As we looked at last week in Colossians, Paul prays for the church in Colossae that they would grow deeper in their understanding of God, but that they would bear fruit at the same time. The two go together. They're mutually authenticating. But there's one other reason. In 1 Timothy 2... Paul charges the church saying to, to this guy, Timothy, who's in charge of a, the church really in Ephesus, in a part of, of modern-day Turkey, and says to him, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. If you are here and a follower of Jesus, you have been appointed to pass on the gospel to the next generation undiluted. That means you need to know what you believe and why, and for it not to be based on merely secondhand opinions, so that you will know it, be able to defend it, and to pass it on to the generation, because the, the next generation, because we have the gospel here in Australia, 2,000 years after Jesus' ministry in a, in a far off, you know, sort of a backwater town in Jerusalem. We have it because followers of Jesus have lived and even been willing to die for this truth because they believe it's so precious. And so we don't want to be casual about these things. But there's one more thing I want to note before we kick off today, and it's this. It should be the case that if we work through this series properly and open the Scriptures thoroughly, that at some point, something we go through, 
is going to offend your sensibilities. And I don't say that because we're trying to be controversial or it's not a shock jock tactic to try and get attention. The reason is, if the gospel is capital T true, that is, it's not just a cultural truth, or it's not something that's true for one particular people group in one particular culture at one point in time, if it's true for all people from all cultures throughout all time, then it will be the case that the gospel both affirms and offends every culture on different points. Let me kind of illustrate it in this way. A guy called uh, G.K. Chesterton tells a little story about the most hated man on earth. He says, it's kind of a mental experiment. He says, just try and imagine, try and imagine the most hated man on earth. But imagine you go to one town and you hear from the people in the town that the reason that he is so hated is because he's so tall. But then you go to another town and you hear that he is hated because he's so short. Then you go to another town and they say he's too hairy. Others say he's a hairless freak. You go to one other town, they say he's too loud. Others say he's too quiet. And you go to each of these towns, and for some reason, they seem to hate him, but for opposite reasons. He said, what would you do at the end of that? Would you conclude that this person was the most misshapen, contradictory human who had ever lived? Or would you assume that perhaps they were the perfect human, and in every town they go to, they expose the weaknesses of that particular town? It is the case that the gospel is disbelieved for opposite reasons in different cultures. In Eastern cultures, Jesus is too lenient. In Western cultures, too harsh and judgmental. In the Middle East, Jesus is too sexually liberal, perhaps. In the West, too sexually restrictive. Jesus cannot be at once both of these things. The truth is, because Jesus is God and transcends all culture, He will offend different cultures for different reasons because He is the embodiment of perfect humanity. And so as we go through this series, we should expect at some point that what Jesus says, the truth about Christ, will conflict with our cultural sensibilities. Unless, of course, I mean, there are two possible exceptions. Either you are the first person who's ever managed to completely transcend the culture that you were raised in, or the gospel has been so assimilated and trimmed to fit our cultural norms that it really doesn't, isn't the gospel anymore. Now, over this series, if we look at this truth rightly, we will be pressed. And I hope when that moment comes, one, that I handled that well, but secondly, that you'd be able to think deeply about what it is that Jesus is pressing on you and why. But I'm going to pray before we open God's Word that He would do this mighty work in us. Let's pray. Brother, I thank you that you are true and eternally true. And I thank you that you have entered into human history and spoken to us through your word and through your son that we might know you truly. Father, we praise you that you don't leave us alone in this world, but you loved us enough to send your son to die in our place. And you give us your word and your Holy Spirit that we might understand who you are. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, the truth that we're looking today is really the one that's upstream from everything else we're going to look at over the next nine weeks. This one is kind of the the central pillar for all the rest of them. Because the question that we're asking today is, what does God love most in the universe? 
Now, that's the same question as saying, what does God love more than anything else? Which is the same question as saying, what does God enjoy more than anything else? Which is the same question as saying, what does God defend above all else? Which is the same thing as saying, what is God most passionate about? What does God love most? When I ask that question, what comes to mind? God most loves... Because the answer that we're going to see in Scripture is this. God most loves God. Now, I don't know if that shocked you or caught you off guard, but I want to show you that this is the resounding note of Scripture, that God is most passionate about God's glory. And this isn't like a... To open the Scriptures and show you that this isn't just like a a kind of a teaching in the Bible that if you squint a bit and look to the left, you can kind of see that it's there. This is the central refrain throughout the whole of Scripture. And so I ummed and ahed about what I'd do for this next bit. And I ran it through on Thursday without anyone in the room, which is familiar now because when we first went into ISO, I just had to speak to a camera in an empty room anyway. But but I just want to let wave after wave of Scripture come over you so that you might see what the Bible is saying on this. And partly I think my resistance to doing it is because we're going to look after text after text of Scripture, is that we are an entertainment-driven culture, and we're not an oral culture, so we're not used to sitting here and listening to spoken words from Scripture. But I want to do it and see if God by His Spirit doesn't work through it as we hear what God has to say about God. So let me run you through, almost from beginning to end, some of the key texts that show us that God is about God's glory. See, God chose His people for His glory. In Ephesians 1 we read, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glory and grace. Not only that, but He created us for His glory. In Isaiah 43, it says, Bring my sons and my daughters from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He called Israel as a people for himself. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Isaiah 49. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled at the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. For his name's sake. God raised up Pharaoh, the wicked emperor who oppressed his people, to demonstrate his power and glory. In Romans 9 we read, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Not only that, but God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. In Exodus 14 it says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. God spared Israel in the wilderness after rescuing them from uh, from Egypt. In In Ezekiel 20 it says, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Not only that, but when he brings them into the promised land, he does this for his glory. In 2 Samuel 7 it says, Who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things. 
But as they rebelled against him, God didn't cast them out. Again, why? For the glory of his name. He says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. In Ezekiel 36, it says, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I will act, but for the sake of my holy name. Not only that, but when Jesus walked on earth, he said that he did everything for one reason, to glorify his Father. In John 7, it says, The one who speaks, speaks on his own authority and seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Jesus even said to his disciples, the whole reason you're supposed to obey God is so that God would get the glory. So in Matthew 5, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus warned that not giving glory to God is what makes faith impossible. In John 5, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from God? Not only that, but as his ministry came to an end and he was going to suffer and die on the cross, the reason he says he was doing it was for the glory of God. In John 12, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. God gave his son, Jesus, to vindicate his glory. In Romans 3, it says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to show God's righteousness. It was to show his righteousness in the present time. Not only that, but God forgives our sins to demonstrate what? His glory. In Romans 15, it says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And he says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Jesus receives us into the fellowship of the glory of God. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for what? The glory of God. And finally, even as we fast forward to the end, the very last section of Scripture, we see that in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God will replace the sun. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its light is the Lamb. Revelation 21. From beginning to end, there is one refrain the whole way through. God acts for His glory. This is the resounding truth of Scripture. God is for God. And if you have been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, and this seems like a truth that is shocking, in many ways it's a truth that's been hidden in plain sight. I remember when it first came to mind that this was the case, I remember it was kind of like, when you buy a car or a pair of shoes and then suddenly you see it everywhere, even though, of course, it's not like the whole world is now just buying whatever you bought, but of course you're noticing it and so you're noticing it everywhere. Once you see that this is the central and abiding motivation for God, you see it everywhere in Scripture. It's saturated in it. In some ways, you're like, how did I not see that the whole time? But surely the question is, I mean, especially if you're here and you have, you have questions about faith yourself, Surely the question in your mind must be, how is this a God that anyone would want to follow? This is, this is a giant narcissist. Why would anyone worship a God who is so addicted to themselves? But I want to say, 
that the reason it's appropriate for God to be like this is the same reason why it's not appropriate for us to be like this. When a person demands worship from other people, the fact of the matter is they are too small to deserve worship from another person. We just aren't significant enough. But God plainly and obviously is. In fact, that's what makes him God. The sun isn't arrogant for being at the center of the solar system. It's simply the biggest thing. It's a natural and unbreakable law of gravity that whatever is largest in mass must be the center of orbit. And so it is with God. The largest thing deserves the worship, and there is nothing greater or grander in all the universe than God himself. God, if he really is to be God, must be for God. If he is the being that has the most knowledge and power and insight, then he must be about and he must love what is most lovable in all the universe, which by definition must be him. Henry Scoogle said, uh, he's an old uh, something, can't think of the word. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, he lived a long time ago, right? He said, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by its love. If you love what is wicked, you become wicked. If you love what is worth loving, your soul rises to the dignity of that thing. The worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. God, who is infinite in worth, loves what is infinite in worth. God loves God. But it's not that God was needy and created little worshippers so he could get affirmation. God is and was infinitely happy and invites us actually to worship him as an invitation to enjoy what he enjoys, to love what he loves. In John 15, the night before Jesus is going to die, he gets his disciples together for one last meal called the Last Supper. And he says to them this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God, and we'll look at this next week, is the only being in the universe that is both three and one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so God is the only being in the universe that can at once be entirely self-centered and others-centered at the same time. Just wrap your mind around that for a tick. We'll dig into that a bit further next week. But God had everything he needed within himself from all eternity. He didn't create humankind because he was desperate for affirmation. It wasn't the depiction of gods like there are in other ancient Near Eastern traditions where the gods are just like petty, powerful, young royals. No, God created us to enjoy what he enjoys. Whatever is large enough and good enough to sustain the joy of an infinite being is more than enough for a finite being like us. He invites us into this. God invites us to be as God-centered as he is so that we will be as joyful as he is. Let me say that again. God invites us to be as God-centered as he is so that we will be as joyful as he is. That's the invitation of John 15. Then the question must be, if this really is true, why don't more people believe it? Why wouldn't everyone be about this? 
If God really is inviting us to the highest joy in the universe, why isn't everyone amongst us? Well, I put to you this. God's God-centeredness runs directly counter to the way we, we are, I don't want to say programmed to think, but the way that our culture is oriented. It's fair to say that in a Western culture like ours, we've very much left God behind, maybe in general, but certainly the God of the Bible behind specifically. And this was no accident. We enjoyed the Industrial Revolution and the, uh, and the, uh, the proliferation of science. And during that time, the, the worldview shifted from the sense that the main point of life was that there was a creator God and you needed to find some way to connect with this God or gods. And it became more about humankind becoming the center of reality. The idea was that through science, we're going to answer all the questions that everyone has always wanted to know. God is just the God of the gaps, and eventually as we kind of fill in the gaps, we realize that there's actually no need for God at all. And so the confidence was that humankind is the center of reality. Not any one person, but us as a race were kind of the center of reality. And there was the confidence that through science and through exploration that we would answer all the great questions of the world. But after realizing the limitation of science to answer profound existential questions, and after two world wars in the 21st century, where science was used to murder more people than had ever been murdered in a century before in human history, people lost confidence in this project. And so we retreated further into ourselves. We went from believing that humankind generally is the center of the universe to actually my personal private journey is the center of the universe. And so was born the worldview of self. And in the second half of the 20th century, there was an explosion of language and vocabulary around this new worldview of self. Words like self-worth, self-esteem, self-respect, self-discovery, self-understanding, self-satisfaction, self-help, all of these really only blew up after the 1950s. And what came with this was a, a reorientation of reality, where previously it was believed that out there was the great truth that we had to discover. Suddenly it was privatized, and the belief was now the journey goes inward. The great truth that is to be discovered lives in me, and I need to find it. And with that came a shift, where now my subjective experience is more important and more true and more real than the world around me. And if all of this sounds too theoretical and whatever, let me explain it in a really, with a really simple illustration. Under the previous worldview, where the belief was that the truth was out there, the world around us was seen as a window through to a greater reality. God, some eternal truth, some grand reality. But once I became the center of the universe, the world became a mirror reflecting me back to myself. So previously, if someone was to take a trip to a waterfall and say, my gosh, this waterfall is sublime. Not that anyone talks like that these days, but let's, we're going back in time. But say someone saw a waterfall and they said, this waterfall is sublime. What they meant by that was there was something about the quality of the waterfall itself that is significant. But what that means now under the new worldview is that waterfall makes me feel something significant. What makes the waterfall significant is that it gives me an experience. That is what is true and real and amazing. And to bring it down to an even more concrete level, what it then meant 
was that the world around me just becomes a mirror to tell me things about myself rather than a window through to a greater reality. And this is, this is seen kind of nowhere clearer than social media. Look, we blame social media for a lot, but in the end, technology is kind of a blank tablet. We put our worldview into it and we use it how we want to use it. The question is, why do we use it in a particular way? And the reason is, because we believe that the self has become the greatest reality, social media reflects that maybe more than anything else. Think, about, think of this as one example. Wedding cake, wedding cake rock is a natural phenomenon, and it's a, it's a, a sheer rock face that kind of, it, it's so sheer and flat that it looks man-made, and yet it's not. It's just a natural occurrence. Now, this spot became such an Instagram hotspot that they actually had to build a fence around it because the, the, the precipice is actually unsafe. So they had to build a fence around it to stop people from gramming themselves on it. And people would just jump in the fence anyway to get shots and risk life and limb just to get a photo on it. Now, the crazy thing about this is, or the significant thing in terms of worldview is, the significance of Wedding Cake Rock is not that it's an incredible natural phenomenon. It's that it becomes a place that can be turned into a photo that can then be responded to through likes and comments. It becomes something in the natural world that can tell me something about myself. I'm a person that other people like. I'm an outdoorsy type. I take good photos. And so suddenly the natural world is now pointed back in towards me. But it's not just, it's not just nature. Even with food, we have a friend in the fashion industry who's saying when they go out for events at fancy restaurants, uh, who says fancy anymore either? What's happened to me in the last... I've become Mr. Burns. No one watches The Simpsons either. I'm like, I, I can't stop. But either way, going to flash restaurants with lavish kind of food and just saying, at these, kind of, at these meals, most of the food would go unfinished. And most of the time would be spent like kind of getting the perfect kind of Instagram shot for it. And so the significance of the food is not the skill or the time that went into it or the flavor, but actually it becomes something that creates a value for me. I am a person who eats at sophisticated restaurants. I'm a person who's kind of in the know. But it's not just with that. It, it, social media then changes the way we experience what would have been a normal reality. I was playing with the kids the other day, and at one point I thought, ah, oh, this would make a good shot. I don't have Instagram or anything, so there was nowhere to sort of indulge that. But as soon as I thought that, instead of enjoying a moment with my kids, I suddenly almost stepped out of it. It was like I was looking back at it from the outside. And instead of it being a moment to enjoy my kids, it's like, what kind of dad do I look like in this situation? The world starts to point us back in on ourselves. And because of this, we become a culture that consumes and consumes because we're looking for information about ourselves. We get new music, new food, new fragrances. And then we go to new countries to get new music, new food, new fragrances because we've run out of ones here. Then we get new technology, new stories. We consume at an incredible rate. And we've become incredibly self-conscious and self-referential. Have you ever been shown a group photo? Be honest, who is the first person you look for? It's you, isn't it? Have you ever read a horoscope and thought, wow, that is so true, and you realize it was the wrong one? It's the case that we are looking for information about ourselves, seeing what does the world tell me about me? And it's led us to be an incredibly self-conscious culture. The top phobia in Australia is public speaking. Why? Because it intensifies our self-consciousness. 
We are looking around the room, gauging, what does that person think of me? What does their face tell me about me? Do they just have a resting angry face or are they actually upset with me? It's an incredibly self-conscious moment. Other cultures don't struggle with this as much. The worldview of self is pulling us into the idea and, and reverberating the idea that I am the center of reality. And it's leading us to experience what Christopher Lash, a, a cultural historian, says is kind of a, a group sense of almost narcissism. He says this, The narcissist can function in the everyday world and is often very charming. However, his devaluation of others, together with a lack of curiosity about them, impoverishes his personal life. With little capacity for detachment, the narcissist must depend on others for constant infusions of approval and admiration. At the same time, his fear of emotional dependence, together with manipulative, exploitive approaches to the personal relations, makes these relations very bland, superficial, and deeply unsatisfying. The narcissist tends to be bored, restlessly in search of instantaneous intimacy, and looking for emotional stimulation without involvement. Isn't it true that as a culture, no, not everyone's experiencing the psychosis of narcissism, but isn't it true that as a culture we struggle with connection? We are restlessly bored. We are constantly consuming things. The worldview of self, of putting ourselves at the center of reality, is turning us further and further inside ourselves. And it's not pleasant. It's true that the truth of Scripture that God is most passionate about God shocks our cultural sensibility. The idea that we might not be the center of the universe is shocking at first, but I would say it's the antidote that we need. And for the church to neglect it, this is the one thing that the world needs right now, something otherworldly, something that dwarfs us and helps us to feel rightly small, something that's worthy of, of our best thinking and time, something more significant than ourselves, something that's genuinely other. We need God as He really is, great, eternal, untamable, beyond us, not accountable to us. A God who really is God in every way. The truth is, in our cultural moment, we have the Midas touch. Everything we touch turns not to gold, but to a mirror. And therefore, it becomes bland and uninteresting over time. We need something to break through our mirrored prison and open our minds to a world that is far bigger, far more dangerous, and more beautiful than we dared ever desire. We need God. And to be honest, isn't that what people are looking for? I mean, why... Why has there been a resurgence in interest in crystals? Or why, has there been a, why was it that Harry Potter just blew up as a book? We want something that's going to give us an encounter with someone that is genuinely other, something otherworldly. We are looking for what is found in reality to be God. We need God. And so this truth that God is most about God is not a curse but a blessing. So here's my challenge for you this week. If you're a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to do something each day to reorient your world to be more God-centered than human-centered or even me-centered. I challenge you to do that because the, the truth is, most of us, if we look into it, uh, will we'll be products of our culture. We naturally incline towards ourselves. And the difference is kind of like this. I don't mean to wade into a culture war when it comes to like cats and dogs, but I've seen this kind of like this to illustrate the point. 
There's a picture of like a dog on one side and a cat on the other, and there's little thought bubbles kind of connected to both. The dog says, my owner feeds me, loves me, cares for me. They must be a God. And the cat says, my owner feeds me, loves me, cares for me. I must be a God. And I think it's, it's, too, it's a very subtle distinction, but is, they're kind of worlds apart in the way you see things. When you hear the statement, God loves you, do you hear that primarily as a statement about your worth or about his? That's the difference in cat and dog theology. One hears that and says, God loves me and sent his son to die for me. What kind of God must he be? This is the orientation that scripture is pulling us towards, a God-centered reality. And so I want to put the challenge to you to say, if it's true that from Scripture it is saying that the more God-centered I am, then the happier I am, to put that to the test this week, to see whether or not that's the case. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, do all things for the glory of God. So here's my challenge for you. Every day, do something that takes less than two minutes where you consider how what you are doing or what's around you points to the glory of God. You're sitting and having the worst of all breakfasts, wheat bix. But you sit and consider how God... I eat wheat bix, it's fine, it's friendly fire. <laughs> but you sit there and you think, man, so God gave me taste buds and food and I've, t- and I've chosen to eat wheat bix of all the things. <laughs> but what a God he must be. Or you're, you're sitting in a, in a public area and you look at the people around you and you think, not one single person here is exactly the same. And I multiply that across 7 billion people across the planet. My gosh, what kind of God must he be? Or consider the weather. Because don't, don't we often consider the weather in a me-centered kind of worldview? Like you've planned a party and it, you can see rain clouds coming overhead and you're like, oh my gosh, this has all happened just for me. Like God organized kilotons of water to converge on a single tract of land just to ruin your day. But instead to flip it the other way and think, man, if there is a God who is sovereign over all of this, what kind of God must that be? And maybe even to open the Word. And instead of kind of like when we look at photographs and we're looking at every page just going, where's the one about me? To think, man, this is a book. God wrote a book. And he wrote it primarily about him. And I find, about my, I find out about myself because he is my creator. But I'm opening the pages of Scripture and I'm looking to see what does this tell me about God? To open the Scriptures every day, even just for two minutes. And we're going to lay this out in missional communities in small groups this week. All the texts, there's 30 texts. And that's just a summary of the ones that are about the glory of God. But to open a couple of those and say, what does this tell me about who God is and what He is like? that we might live out the reality that to be, that to be most God-centered is to be most happy. I'm going to pray that God by His Spirit would do that mighty work in our hearts this week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We praise You that You are the greatest reality in all of human experience. That there is no one or nothing like You no one to whom we may fairly compare you, that you are beyond our comprehension, and yet you have made us to be in relationship with you, to know you truly, and to know that you are our heavenly Father, the lover of our soul, the one whose Son died in our place on our behalf to demonstrate that you are a good and powerful and loving and wise God. 
Father, we pray that we would experience the joy that you experience of delighting in your glory and that all of this may be for the glory of your name. Amen.